This is the Run Through Official Podcast, brought to you by Stateside Shirts and MSPFX, combining tough but important conversations surrounding mental health. With fun stories and sporting content from ourselves and special guests, I'm Chris Phillips. And I'm Eddie Cooper. Hello and welcome. Joining us on this episode is Olympic team sprint gold medalist and individual sprint silver medalist from Rio, former GB cyclist Callum Skinner. Pleasure to have you on, mate. Hello, thanks for having me. How you doing? You alright? I'm well. I'm coping with lockdown okay. As uh, you guys said earlier, I've got uh, a better lid than uh, both of you two. So, um... <laughs> Right, so if we start right back at the beginning for you, I mean, how did you first get into to cycling yourself and when did you realise that you first had what it took to, to get to the very top of the sport? Uh, yeah, so I just kind of loved club sport. Um, I wasn't a big fan of PE, wasn't particularly good at it, so never really saw myself as sporty. Um, but I, I loved club sport because it was it was different to your traditional sports or just learning around the pitch as it was in our school sometimes. And um, I, I loved the community that came with that as well. Um, so when I moved to Edinburgh, my family moved around quite a lot when I was a kid, but when I moved to Edinburgh, there was a velodrome there um, and I always wanted to give it a go. Um, first time I went down there, um, I, I just kind of was fixated by it. You got 48 degree bankings. You can go speeds up to, you know, when you're professional, about 90 kilometers an hour. You can pull about 2G when you're going down the corners. Um, and as a kid who doesn't have, uh, you know, a license or anything like that to, you know, drive a motorbike or a car, it was a great way to get that speed fix. Um, and what's more was the, the community. It was wonderful. Like it's an expensive sport, but never had to kind of beg my mum to get me anything in particular the community was always there and um and that's that's what i loved about it um when i realized i was good came quite late um again i had this kind of idea that i wasn't particularly sporty um but then i went to the junior british championships and uh came second no came fourth one year and then came first uh, the year after that and it was when i came first that i actually thought I'm, I'm okay at this and um and broke the junior record at the same time um but yeah i was i was quite a shy kid around that time so to to openly talk about success or ambition was was a bit alien to me um but no i loved it I, I, and i still absolutely love it drawing on what you just said about about success a bit, a bit alien um obviously 2016 olympics phenomenal achievement to win win two medals um what are your own memories of that uh, 2016 was a, a really tough year. So I know every, every time someone turns on the TV and there's British cyclists on there, they expect them to win. Um, and, and that's, that's just because every athlete that we've sent to the Olympic games, including 2016, um, since 2008 has come away with a medal of some color in track cycling. So that's like a massive success rate. Oh, sorry, bar one, but I won't mention who they are. Um, <laughs> So, so the hit rate is absolutely massive. Um, and I think that led to people presuming that, that we were just going to step up there and win. Um, but a few months before we were at the World Championships and we finished in sixth place in a, in a team event. Um, so there's a huge amount of pressure to try and step up to that mantle. Um, and also, you know, the other two guys in this three-man team were Philip Hines and Jason Kenny, reigning Olympic champions. I was the guy who was taken over from Chris Hoy, Britain's most successful ever Olympian. And it was pretty obvious that I was letting the side down. Um, because in the timesheets you can go through the performance of each individual rider within that team 
So it'd be like Philip Hines, the team's in first place. Jason Kenny, the team's still in first place. Callum Skinner does the, you know, let's say, 10th fastest lap of the competition. And overall, that put the team in sixth place. So there was, there was nowhere to hide. And, um, you know, for all the different reasons I mentioned, the, the pressure leading up to that was absolutely immense. But it, it kind of made the success of it even, even sweeter. After those games, I've seen you say previously that it was a sort of almost a mourning process for you. And they were the toughest sort of two years of your life. I mean, just how difficult was that for you post Rio? Yeah, no, it was huge. Um, I, I guess it's, it's a little bit of an emotional roller coaster because when you, when you win in that fashion, um, you almost enter a state of, of euphoria. Um, you feel like you're on top of the world and, you know, it doesn't matter what you get hit with, like tax bills or even like to the point of someone stabbing you, you'd kind of think, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm a <laughs> champion, who cares, let's just keep partying. Um, so to go from, from that mindset to eventually it dies down, you come home um, and fundamentally nothing especially in your life changes the the next goal becomes Tokyo and you're in the same place same staff you kind of have to move on um, but the morning process came about where I think I think cycling on deflection became a major distraction for me um, you know I, I had a kind of few issues growing up and and a few issues that developed through my career as well but it was always put to bed by that Olympic distraction. And, and to lose that was, was tough because there was, no, there was no other distraction that I could fill it with. Um, you know, I, I, I tried different things. Some of them were quite destructive. Um, but basically nothing could fill that void. So that's why it actually felt like a, like a mourning process because you, you couldn't ignore issues that you'd suppressed for those past 10 years. They, they, were, they were there and you couldn't get rid of them. Yeah, it sounds, sounds, sounds really difficult to be fair. Um, but obviously, you know, being at the top level of sport as well, there's that level of support, psychiatrists and psychologists and stuff. And Steve Peters is obviously, you know, well known for his work with the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan and Doug Wilkinson. <laughs> uh, just how important was he for, for, for you? Yeah, no, he was he was absolutely immense. And, um, you know, I probably still get quite emotional about it now, but he, he genuinely kind of saved me. Um, and, that, and that's the opinion of, of my family as well. But, you know, I was, I was kind of battling with it for two years with, um, with different practitioners that I didn't find as effective. And, um, you know, I was just, instead of treading water, I was kind of starting to sink. Uh, and I, I think the reason for that, because, you know, you think that, that you know, athletes are well-resourced in terms of especially physical care, but also mental health care as well. But it's, it's a different kind of psychology. You're dealing with a sports psychologist and, and sports psychology was never really an issue. I, I worked in it like everyone else, but you know, it couldn't help me with the fact that I was you know, deeply unhappy every single day. Um, it could help me with on-track nerves or you know, trying a bit harder in training, but that's, that's where the void was. Um, so initially I sought help from... Uh, from the priory uh, but then on the other hand they didn't really understand sport enough so you're kind of caught in this in this in limbo basically I remember speaking to the priory and saying you know I'm going off to you know Mexico next week for a month um, you know can we keep this treatment going and they were like oh well you know for um, for patient confidentiality we we're not really comfortable doing remote consultations um, and then there was also other points where they were like oh why don't you just take some time off and I was kind of like well I don't have sick pay. I don't have any job security. And if I do take time off, I'll be six months behind everyone else. Um, so Steve Peters was great for filling, 
for getting that balance right. Um, he understood how my brain worked from a sports psychology point of view, um, but most importantly, he understood the lifestyle of an athlete. Um, he understood what I could do within that and what I couldn't do, um, and that's what that's what I found most effective. And uh, you know, forever grateful for him because he he treated me pro bono um, at one of the points where I was at my uh, absolute lowest. So yeah, he made a, a a really big impact for me and my family. The limbo sort of aspect, where you're sort of in between the the sports side of things and psychology there, and the actual you know socially mental side of things, completely separate from sport. Do you think there's a enough support, or there's a some form of network throughout sport in general? Do you think there's enough of a support network that fills that void? I definitely think that in terms of physical care, I, I have no complaints um, when it comes to being an athlete. Uh, you know, we're fully insured. Uh, above the you know to the eyeballs we we never really have to go through the nhs there's never any wait times everything's done immediately and it's all about getting back to the field um with with mental health i think there is a little bit of a gap um you know i've spoken to a lot of athletes who have found the plyly effective or found sports psychologists effective so it's not to dismiss that but there's definitely people who kind of fall through the through the cracks and i think if we were talking about physical health care we'd leave no stone unturned budget wouldn't be an issue we'd get you the help you need to get you back to play um, but I don't think that's quite the same at the moment for mental health care. Yeah, because the Commonwealth Games, that was quite a, a tough time for you as well, wasn't it? I know you came away with a bronze medal, I think it was, but you really had to dig deep for that. I've seen your interviews about that in the past. That was very hard for you as well. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it was probably one of the points where I kind of thought I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, the, the Commonwealth Games basically ended up in a little bit of a, a breakdown, I guess. Um, and uh, it was it was really tough and I think that was the point where I started getting people from my coach to the team doctor um, to my mum and kind of having a bit of an awakening and saying like this can't go on any longer I know you've been trying to avoid time off um, but at minimum we need to be looking at, at, at time off um, but yeah no, I'd say I had that initial kind of breakdown quite early in the competition and um, was presented with the option of um, medication to get me stable but I declined because I kind of held on to this this view of being able to compete towards the end of the competition um, and the good thing about the event that I was competing in is the kilo that's a single ride so you know uh, it's it's a bit of a a lot of the other disciplines are kind of like a game of chess it's about mental fortitude and you have to keep coming back it's best of three and you have to keep on fighting for days at a time sometimes because it was a single event, I thought, I've never got a Commonwealth Games medal. This could be the last race of my career. Um, so I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, so I kind of summoned every bit of energy, emotional energy that I, I had left. Um, crossed the line with two riders to go. Saw that I was in first place, so guaranteed a medal. Um, and I think I still had some kind of faint hope that I'd look up at the screen and, and see that result and be kind of happy. Um, but I, I was looking up there and thankfully we were advisors but I was like deeply distressed there was I, I didn't get any kind of satisfaction from it at all there was no euphoria like I talked about earlier I basically just wanted to run away as quickly as possible um, but you know looking back at it now and being in a much better place I'm, I'm really proud that I managed to kind of tick off that that box on, on my CV I've, I've got a Commonwealth Games medal um, I kind of showed a lot of determination to, to push through probably to the to the anguish of people who are supporting me um, but you know I'm still proud of that and uh, really grateful to have come through the other side.
I mean, it definitely, definitely something you should be proud of. But to compete at that level and not only to just compete, but to win a medal is, is a, an astonishing achievement. I'm assuming that was the sort of the point where you spoke about you just, that was it. Yeah, are you still cycling now though? Or? Yeah, and that, that's been one of the wonderful things. Um, if we kind of take this as a full cycle, I, you know, fell out of love with cycling, hated it. A lot of my most intrusive thoughts came when I was on the bike for hours at a time. Um, and and now I'm at a place where I love it again, and I've, I've regained that childhood love of of actually finding it, you know, not only enjoyable but an escape, and it's definitely not detrimental. So that's that's the first thing that's that's been really wonderful about this whole experience, I guess. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really completely settled on on the tiling at that point. I think I, I was kind of aware that at this point, despite having my head in the stand, that I was quite unwell, and it's probably not the best time to make that decision. Um, but uh, you know, I was kind of wavering, and I went to British Cycling and asked for some time off, which you know, given the context I've given you guys, was a was a massive deal. It was huge for me to go in there and say oh, I want some time off. And um, basically, an individual who was in charge of that process said no, um, and basically just said we can't have all of our athletes taking a six week holiday, otherwise we wouldn't have a team. And um, I kind of you know sitting here now obviously i could have stood up for myself and said it's not a holiday you idiot um it's <laughs> i'm trying to recover from a pretty severe mental illness here um but i think at that point i was i was done i was like i i, I you know with that respect now i respect myself too much to be to be given that dilemma um it needs to be health first and you know i made the right decision um but you know maybe if they'd uh, if that one individual had, had kind of nurtured that a little bit better and been a bit more supportive, we could we could be in a different place. Um, but you know, saying that it is a single individual, I don't I don't think it's um, systematic within the team. Um, as much as that one individual was not very compassionate um, and not very understanding, I've, I've found tremendous support from many other people in the team, whether it be the team doctor, the coach, teammates, things like that. Um, and for that, I'm still immensely thankful for, and would still recommend. Uh, you know, young athletes joining the British cycling team today. Um, it was just a, an unfortunate kind of culmination of events, I guess. Yeah. And with your retirement, was there almost an immediate release that that pressure had gone or was it quite hard to adjust to maybe having more time to think about unhelpful thoughts and that kind of thing? How, how did you feel immediately after you stopped racing? Well, I think uh, Steve was really good at getting me in a decent enough place before I made that decision. Um, so, you know, he still had a degree of influence within the team. And uh, despite that initial meeting not going that well, um, they they managed to secure my funding for long enough to the point where I got better and was able to make that decision with a clear head. Uh, but it, it's definitely not a, a relief to be out of that system. Um, it's kind of everything you know. Like, I've, I've never had a a standard job I've never been to university since the age of 17 never had anything to do with the NHS it's it's a total culture shock um my mum kind of describes that athlete set up as as being almost kind of cult-like because everything's taken care of you you're just a physical asset who's there to perform um so it's it's unnerving uh you've got to think well if 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 I'm faced with any mental health issues in the future you hear a lot of scaly stuff about how long it takes to get treated in the NHS will will that be there as a fallback um, do I need to look at private healthcare? Do I need to get a job? What job am I going to do? I gave up university education to be an athlete. Obviously, it's turned out well, but you know, it's all kinds of nonsense just flies through your head. Um, so it was, 
uh, it was probably a relief to not have to hit various numbers every single day and not have to hold it together in front of my my kind of teammates as I was doing, you know, masking it. Um, but those those kind of insecurities and worries were replaced by another heap load of other ones. But there's certainly a sense of freedom. Um, you know, I could be where I want to be at whatever time I wanted to be at, and that was quite liberating. Yeah, and when you talk about masking it, how much better was it when you did sort of open up and start talking about things and other people listening to this who are going through their own difficulties with their mental health? I mean, how much would you encourage them to sort of seek help and be and be open about it? How much did it help you? I guess, uh, again, kind of Steve taught me this, that like the only out and out proven way that, that you can improve your mental health is, is through speaking. You know, there's lots of other stuff about like yoga and sport and all that kind of stuff. But in his opinion, there's only one way that is proven, which is to speak to people and open up. And that's something I find immensely difficult, um, especially being an athlete. There's that kind of almost toxic, toxic masculine side to it. You have to put a brave face in it. And partly what led to my breakdown at Comedy Games, it's like I, I can't break into tears in the middle of the track center. I've got 20,000 people sitting around me, my teammates over there, the media behind me. Like I'd look like an absolute tit. Um, so you you invest a, a hell of a lot of energy in hiding it, and that that probably became more detrimental than the thoughts itself. Just the the kind of brave face that you had to stick on it. Um, but you know, I, I I just say that you have to you have to keep speaking out and speak to people that you trust. Um, I, I think I think that term of you know let's talk or just talk needs needs to have a little bit more of a caveat to it you need to find someone who you're really confident in to start with that that you feel safe with and disclosing that personal information um you know obviously i i kind of got bit on the arse in one instance but what i would say to other people who maybe have had a bad experience or are feeling a bad experience that can't stop you you have to keep going yeah and you have to keep on pushing through the same with therapists the same with doctors you need to keep on pushing and it, and it is exhausting but eventually you'll see the the other side Moving forward to the more, the more modern day, we've got a, um, a coffee company and a, and a glasses company. Do you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Yeah, so uh, I, I guess when I was 17 years old, I was like one of the slowest guys to ever be taken on the team. And but what I guess what the team saw was like a kid who was like extremely ambitious, but just not focused enough. So they harnessed all of that into one single objective. And in the early part of my career, that worked really well. Towards the end, didn't work so well because I felt like this is all I've got to offer to the world. Um, but at that point, it definitely worked. And I guess where I'm sitting now is that I've been able to find that kind of 17-year-old version of myself again and do a whole myriad of projects. Um, like my, my CV seems to have just, I mean, there's no actual meaningful length of time worked in an organization but in terms of like lists of job titles it's just gone like massively from like one to about 20 and um i i, I like that scatter approach it's really liberating it's it's really interesting um I, and i've been a, in a position where i can kind of say yes to most of the opportunities that come through my door instead of kind of saying well i've got training on monday i might be in asia next week or something like that um so yeah really grateful for the the glasses project that was through a school friend um, we just had a really successful fundraising uh, uh, raise on Kickstarter. We raised about 100k there. The coffee company started with two other mates um, who are both Olympic champions. You know, we we cleared about I don't know about 10k turnover in our first month, which is pretty big for us, given that we were yeah. setting out as a bit of a cottage industry. Yeah. Um, and you know, a few other professional titles as well. Like worked for a nutrition company, worked for one of the biggest sporting retailers um, in the UK, um, working with one of the biggest investment banks in the UK, um, 
and it, it's just it, it's totally random but I'm really enjoying it and your athlete lead for global athlete as well I mean talk us through that that must take up a lot of your time as well yeah so um yeah my girlfriend's not particularly happy about how much time I have to commit to various <laughs> projects but um yeah global athlete is uh, I volunteer for a few athlete uh, committees like the BOA um, and UK Anti-Doping um, but Global Athlete fits me really well um, it's basically just an organization which fights for athletes rights and doesn't go down that traditional road of kind of soft power and sports governance which is very much like oh could you maybe think about doing this and if you do this then there might be something in it for you like we just kind of go out and say this is shit you need to fix it and or at the same time we say you know you've done a good job congratulations but it's it's very much like a, a pressure group or a campaign group there's none of that kind of political jiggly pokery that you see in a lot of other organizations um so we're campaigning pretty heavily to try and get athletes some kind of remuneration during the olympic games to try and improve their mental health um out with and during olympic games um uh, you know the juice uh, doping issues within sport um we kind of just go wherever wherever the issues take us and um it's a wonderful organization i mean obviously you've um, you just just then just touched on the anti-doping stuff and you uh gave a gave a speech in the white house um obviously in a sport especially that that's been tarnished a little bit negatively with doping um how important was that and, and what was that like that must have been amazing yeah no it's a bit strange and um I mean, before we, I know people have got preconceptions about the White House, especially at the moment, but before I went in, I did wear a rainbow pin badge and did have my tie as long as Donald Trump has it as a little bit of a piss stick. Um, but then gave a very serious speech about anti-doping, um, which I think went rather well. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's incredibly important. And I, I felt like a real responsibility to, to try and improve the sport. And it's, it's, it's probably the loose connector between all the different projects I do is that, you know, even like five things coffee, it's about sharing our athlete stories with, with consumers, um, you know, working with a nutrition company, it's been about delivering safe products to athletes. So we don't get false positives. It's just all, all these different projects are kind of tied together in trying to improve the sport. And as you said, like anti-doping is, is, is something which is, which was, was a huge issue in, in cycling and to some extent still is. And I remember when I set out in my career, I kind of thought, you know, I want to do things differently. It's going to be whiter than white, cleaner than clean. Um, but, you know, through my time through the team, uh, there was obviously anti-doping issues with uh, Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, Lizzie Dine, and uh, one of the eight, uh, Simon Yates as well. And as much as I was doing the best I could independently, you kind of were tarred with the same brush. Um, you know, even Have I Got News For You made like a joke about the British cycling team all being doped. And it kind of hurt me a little bit, to be honest, because I was like, I, I, I've been so diligent and so determined to try and turn this around. And due to other people's, uh, you know, either direct or indirect kind of failings, I guess, I'm kind of tarred with the same brush. So that's that's why it's so important to me. I want I want people who come into the sport to not have that that same cloud kind of hanging over them in the distance, and you know, for a whole myriad of reasons, it's going to be beneficial for the sport. How yeah. how difficult do you think it is in in today's modern age, you know, to stay like completely clean? Uh, I've got to say, from my personal point of view, it was it was pretty easy. I never had anyone come to me and say, you know, take this, do that. And um, I actually interviewed a guy called Colin Sturges, um, who was a world champion around about the Chris Boardman either. And and he told me a story in a in a podcast where he was presented with a series of syringes and pills and told to take it after a race. 
Um, and if he didn't, he had to go to the toilet, dispose of them, and then pretend that he took them. And if, if we think that we're, if we're going from kind of that culture in the kind of 80s to, to where we are now, where I've not really seen anything untoward, and if I did, I'd be shouting from the rooftops about it. That's kind of one of my best defenses, like completely outspoken. And if I did see something, I'd probably be the first to say something. Um, I, I, think, I think that's been a great transformation. Um, and I'm hoping that continues. Um, and I'm doing what I can to, well, my part anyway, to try and see that that continues. Yeah, definitely. And I know you can't often always believe what you read on the internet, but were you nearly a pilot at some point? Was that was that right as yeah. well? And you had to choose between doing that or becoming a cyclist? <laughs> yeah, for a short period of time. Um, that was actually, like, the deeper story to that was that it was so good for me to find some kind of worth outside of sports. So in 2014, I was, I was thinking of the tiling. I wasn't progressing as quickly as I would have liked in the sport. And... Um, you know, given what I said about job security and all that kind of stuff, I was kind of thinking, well, if I get chucked off tomorrow, I'm going to be in the shit, basically. Um, so I, I started applying for stuff. And one of the things was the BA Future Pilot program. Uh, got through the first stage and second stage. And then I kind of thought, well, if I wanted to keep doing this, I could. But and, and, and in essence, that kind of, that's kind of ticked that insecurity that I had. I can go back to sport and, and kind of live pretty freely by it. You know what I mean? It's, I'm not just an athlete. It could be a pilot. It could be whatever I'm doing now. Um, you know, it's uh, it was really good for me to just find that that extra sense of self worth outside of sport. Do, do you think, with with regards to um, you know vocations outside of sport, that athletes are sort of prepared well enough for for retirement and you know not just retirement if you know an injury threatened their career? Do you think outside of sport they'd be quite comfortable to transition, or do you think there needs to be improvements in that area? Now, there's, there's a huge amount that needs to be done. And the, the argument that I found most persuasive with the people that need to make change is that if we exclude the fact that it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to support, at some point, even like 17-year-olds, like adolescents, kids into, into a new world of life, it's, it's the economic and performance-driven thing to do. You know, we're a publicly and privately funded organization, as is all Olympic sport across the country. And as much as the army experienced a bit of a backlash in the 1980s about having um, uh, people who were previously in the military being kind of, quote, useless to society afterwards, we could be faced with a similar thing in Olympic sport. Athletes need to come out the other side with something that's tangible and something that's, that's of worth to society. And some people can find that themselves and have done very successfully, but others really struggle. Um, and if, if we support that and do well by them, that's what's going to keep us winning medals in the future because the funding is going to stay alone. Um, but no, it's, it's a huge issue. And uh, I really hope that we, we, we get to the bottom of it. Um, you know, even just stuff like regardless of the amount of time that you spent, even if you spent like 20 years in the British, in any Olympic sport in the UK and being paid, being full time, you've got no pension, no national insurance, and they could chuck you off with a day's notice at any point. And to me, that's not responsible. And I think, if we don't start to tackle it a bit more proactively now, it's uh, it could leave us with a bit of a legacy issue as well. Yeah, definitely. And we've got the Olympics coming up. It was obviously due to be this year. It's going to be next year now. Touch wood. Do you do you miss it when you see it on the telly? Will that be hard mentally as well when you think, oh, four years ago that was me. I was I was winning that. And or is it almost a relief that you haven't because you know what they'll be feeling in the build up to it? How will you feel when you'll sort of be watching it? It's going to be difficult with the Olympics, but I've been to the World Championships in person once and then in distance in the other. 
and um, I actually really enjoyed it. It was it was it was quite nice to indulge back into that kind of chess power play mentality that I was talking about, but trying to see the positive sides of it. It's um, in in the sprint race that we do. It's all about control. You need to have control over your opponent the entire time, um, and and to actually like indulge in that with no other kind of baggage um immediate baggage was was quite nice and i could enjoy the sport for for what sparked my initial love for it in the first place um i i think whenever i kind of toy with it with a comeback or something like that i'm kind of like well i came out at the best time i set out to be olympic champion i achieved that in arguably spectacular fashion is it is it going to get better and you know what would it mean to me if i got another olympic gold medal I, I don't necessarily think it would change that much. I'd, I'd still be who I am. I'd have to give up all these opportunities I'm doing now. And I, I think that's that's the best kind of test is that I'm enjoying what I'm doing so much now. I don't particularly have much of a yearning to be back in there, um, but I can still separate myself and enjoy enjoy it for the reasons why I got into it when I was a kid. Where do you where do you keep your gold medal? What do you, that's what I want to know. Where, where do you put it when, you, when you've won it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's just in a sock drawer. Um, <laughs> Because I think what, what people don't understand is like you have to take it out quite a lot. And yeah. if it was in a medal, if it was in like a trophy cabinet or like in a frame or something like that, you know, I haven't got the patience to like put it on the floor and take out all the pins and then take it out again, take it out. Bring it out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just keep it in a sock, which is much smaller than the ceremonial case, which you're supposed to keep it in. Keeps it nice and protected. And um, I'm actually quite liberal about them. If you go to dinners or anything like that, I've lost track of them a couple of times when they just get past those. But it's really important to me because it's like, I never got to hold an Olympic medal when I was a kid or any age, really. Um, And I think it's something pretty special. And I I quite enjoy being able to offer that to other people. So they're they're not in the best shape. Um, In fact, one of them got so bashed up, it turned out to be a manufacturing defect. And they said, you can return it and get it swapped for a nice shiny one. And um, and I kind of said no because there's so many memories attached to all those little dinks, and you know they're they're there to be shared. They're not there to be kind of locked up in a in a museum. I think so. So that's why I kind of I'm quite liberal about them. I haven't lost them yet. Don't intend to. And long may that be the case. So you're still st- still a massive cycling fan. Obviously, it's probably you know a little bit refreshing now to to go with a um and as a non-athlete, as a you know fan of the sport. No, I'm I'm, I'm just. Uh, like this is something a bit ashamed to say, but like at, at the end of your competition, you're always offered plenty of tickets as an athlete to go and see other events. Um, now the diplomatic answer was that I was too busy to go and see those other events, but actually it's because I was out the night before. And then by the time you woke up, you didn't get any of the tickets. Um, but that, truly as a spectator, I love all those little sports. And I think that's one of the magical things about the Olympic games is that you get to experience all this kind of like bonkers stuff, like doubles luge in the winter Olympics. Like that should be, who ever thought of that as an idea um and i love those little niches that are in there and track cycling itself is a bit of a niche and it's what captivated my interest in it so i love getting stuck into that as well yeah and with you yourself we've noticed that you're a real ally for the lgbt community is that something that you're sort of very passionate about as well yeah no for sure and uh, you know my I'm pretty open about it now but um my dad is an openly gay and, and married man um, my brother's openly gay uh, as well and it was something I always hid from sport because I didn't think it'd be the most accepting place I grew, I, I grew up in a I went to a high school which was very um, 
laid, you know, very liberal, very laid back. There was other kids in the school who had same sex parents. Our head teacher danced on stage with David Bowie at some point, and um, we didn't have a uniform. Um, but then coming to British cycling, where you had to be on time and you had to wear the same kit, it was all about uniformity and that kind of robotic process. It didn't really feel like a place where I could be as open about that. So I hid it. And um, after the Olympic Games, I kind of felt as if my career was in a, a good enough place where I, I could speak about it and and felt confident about it. And if I got if I got shit back off everyone else, then going back to that initial point about being Olympic champion, it's like, who cares? I'm Olympic champion, doesn't matter. Um, so I was I was quite open about it, and it, it's something that I'm really keen to try and progress within sport. Sport should be a place for for everyone, and I'm keen to advance that that cause as much as possible. I've done a I've done a few bits for for Stonewall, where we have um, kind of national congresses with the heads of various Premier League clubs, and a, a whole bunch of them just don't get it, and and I'll be kind of sitting on a stage with. Um, uh, you know, a few other um, athletes who are um, homosexual themselves, um, you know, maybe someone who's, you know, transition gender as well. And, you know, like at Olympic, I, I feel as if a lot of these people in positions of power aren't able to, aren't able to assimilate with some of these characters. So I, I think there's, there's a genuine strength in, in having that kind of campaign message come from someone who's a bit more relatable and it opens the door for them to be able to build those relationships with people that they traditionally might have found a little bit scaly. So that's, that's kind of what I feel as if I can offer to, to that movement is kind of like a little bit of a halfway house. And then, you know, before you know it, you'll be as, as friendly with, the, with them as you are with me and you'll realize we've got far more in common than we have that separates us. And is that why you wore the rainbow badge at the White House just finally? Is that and how did that go? Did the people notice that? Well, they didn't notice, and I actually got one of the people that were looking after me to take a photo with a long tie and the badge outside of Mike Pence's office, who's a who's a horrible homophobe. Um, <laughs> so, so that was quite satisfying. I just I just didn't feel as if I could go unless unless I showed some kind of solidarity with it. I respect the office enough to to go regardless of who's kind of in there but i felt as if i needed to send a message as well because fundamental parts of the administration just don't gel with with who i am as a person or, or the people that i love so so that's why i felt as if i needed to make a, a statement didn't didn't they although the show or anything like that just kind of made a personal point about it i think i think that's a, a very poignant poignant uh answer to end on uh, if i'm honest Alan, thank you very much for chatting to us uh, no worries. Okay. You, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, as always. Yeah.